Welcome back to the Flow Artist Podcast. This is a continuation of our recording with Eugenie Knox, and we pick up right where we left off. What happened after the opening of her new Dance of Life studio on Smith Street? We also talk about her disenchantment with some of the swamis and gurus she encountered, and how she came about devoting herself to Amma. We'll also talk about the upcoming Yoga Fest retreat on the beautiful Mornington Peninsula. We briefly talk about how she came to writing and illustrating her memoirs, and about living life to the beat of your own drum. As always, stick around for the picks of the week. Freya had slipped down the staircase, which is almost, you know, what sort of degree is that? <laughs> Steep. <laughs> on the little slippery shoes and lay on the ground in a tutui fluff. Oh. And this gasp from the audience, because I was trying to say, I was advertising is going to be a place for children to come to, clowning, dance, etc., etc. And the audience slowly, we got the, the ambulance to come, carried her off, where no one knew what was wrong. It ended up with broken wrist. We thought it might be anything. Yeah. So that was the end of that opening. You would have thought that would be the end of the whole thing, wouldn't you? Mm. But not this muscle no. here, not this muscle. <laughs> this muscle here got into action and off we went with the Martha Graham classes, with the classes for kids, clowning Saturday morning, um, yoga. I had other people coming to teach some people I knew. And the young, wonderful people that started to come along to classes, there was, you know, Johannes and Vishal and Joe Windred and oh, the, the whole batch is still there. We've still got, there's still a community. And I just feel that it was just grace from start to finish. We'd meet, they'd come every morning, Monday to Friday, for $20 a lot, and do a two-hour workout. Then we'd have breakfast together, ginger tea and honey and banana and on toast with tahini. And everyone would tell their stories. We'd unburden our souls, you know. You could have been a murderer and still been forgiven in that <laughs> atmosphere. You know what I mean? Because we've all we've all got the capacity to be anything. Mm. And we have been, you know. We've all done everything and we're capable of it. But here we were as a young group. We were growing as one, you know, and it was just absolutely fantastic. And $20, <laughs> you asked about the money side of things. The reason I managed to survive, because I, I kept my house down at the farm. I got a woman in who was a friend, and she used to do um, rebirthing. And so she rented that place. We wrote out a thing together. It wasn't legal, but for us it was, that she would live there for a year while I started the studio here because I couldn't pay both rents. And I was Rainbow the Clown. So Rainbow went out. A couple of times a week, and we'd earn $150 with a show. Now, these shows were very hard work because I'd go to schools. I firstly get the bookings. Mm-hmm. I was good at that. And I'd, I'd advertise and so on and so forth. The show would sort of sell itself in a way. It was an hour long mime and dance performance magic. And I would take the props. I had a van, take the props to wherever the blinking place was set up this backstage, you know, black curtains, you know, big hefty things with, so I could stick the sticks in, you know, set up a whole thing. So you built your own stage every yeah, time? every oh, wow. time. And do this show, hear the kids in the, in the passageway all excited, in they come. <clears throat> I could hold those kids in the palm of my hand. I could hold them like you can't believe. I just had a, a wonderful touch with kids. And always have had. Not so much these days. <laughs> Maybe kids for me now are more your age. <laughs> <laughs> because the little kids look at me now and they're not so sure, you know. But um, in the early days, I used to teach them a lot. You know, for f- over 40 years, I taught kids, you know, clowning, dancing, acting, you know, fun, fabulous stuff. So that's how the Dance of Life studio, yoga studio, developed through the teachings of Shandor and what I knew from my own experiences, my own classes and, you know, from the city yoga days. And um, it just developed. Partially financed by Rainbow the Clown. Uh, that's right. And then when Rainbow, Rainbow could gradually slowly... I'll tell you why Rainbow stopped. Because Rainbow had been around for 10 years. 
I had a little room underneath the stairs in, at the studio. You come in the first few flight of stairs and then there's a little room to your left with a door but no lock. My props were in there. My coat, which had been with all the clown shows, it was a beautiful coat, it had rainbow on the back and frill and big puffy rainbow sleeve. I had a hat that had, you know, feathers and flowers and birds, everything in this hat, you know, ostrich feathers. And it had been with me all these years. And my wig, I had a wig, and that was part of, these were, these were my, I'd dress in front of the audience. I'd start as an ordinary person and change into the clown in front of them. So they're all there in that room. And I'm upstairs. I used to leave the front door open. That's what it was like in those days. So um, for some reason I heard a little sound. And I went downstairs and I saw one of my props on the ground, like a flower, lying there. And I just opened the door and my costume was gone. Someone stole your rainbow costume. My rainbow costume was gone. That coat, the hat, and the wig. And I had two shows the next day. Oh. Oh. What did I do? I called the police because, uh, you know, anyway, it was a crazy thing for police to look for clowns. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and, and, well, anyway, they couldn't find it. Of course they couldn't find it. But I thought, I'm going to have to quickly create a new costume, which I did. And it was inferior, but it was did all right. Job. It did the job, but that was the fade out. That was another turning point. Yeah, exactly. you got to recognise them when they come, because mm. they do come. Mm. Yeah. And so something that the beautiful Dance of Life community still connects back on from their spread out locations around Melbourne as well as the studio is Yoga Fest. So do you want to tell yes. us a little bit about the beginnings <laughs> of Yoga Fest? Well I do actually um, because are you, I haven't mentioned Amma. No. And after Baba Muktananda died in 1982 I was actually in his ashram and it really hit me like um, like terribly and I was I wept for him and I wept for my mother and I wept for all the death that I'd ever known and came back to Melbourne and watched his, a lot of the people that were involved, his swamis, a lot of Western swamis, he made a lot of Western swamis, gradually left his, uh, what do you call it, uh, organisation, I suppose, community. They'd left and became married people and started having children. And that was like, these these people, I thought of them as sort of really high in some kind of, place beyond they all wore orange and they're bald-headed and they're giving great talks and they're swamis they've chosen another path that's what i thought but here they've come out and they're back in walking around in ordinary shoes and clothes and mm -hmm. becoming corporate consultants and things you know it was all my judgment it doesn't mm -hmm. matter what they did but that's how it, it felt like i'd lost everything again another loss and um so ama came into my life um eight years after Muktananda died, because she came to Australia. But how it happened was, one day I got a phone call and they asked me, would I like to come? A few people asked me if I'd like to come to meet um, somebody who was going to talk about an Indian saint, a young Indian saint, and whether we wanted her to come to Australia. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to get involved in this. I've been involved in this city yoga and I've watched these swamis disintegrate in front of my very eyes. Why on earth would I want to get involved again with another guru from India? So I thought, no, I'm not going to go. But do you know what happened? I went. <laughs> <laughs> I remember walking up the path and I went in. I didn't know it was the last thing I was going to do. How did this happen? <laughs> I'm seeing a pattern here. <laughs> You got that right, right? <laughs> anyway, so yes, they're a group of people and they used to all be Baba people and now they're no longer there because it all fell to pieces. And um, they, there was a lovely woman there in a white sari, a Western woman, but she was an American. I immediately got put off by that because, you know, a lot of city yoga had a lot of Americans and um, they, they were all really pushy and shovey. 
And um, that seemed to be the general approach. You know, you Australians are less than, we are better than you, you know, push, shove. And so I thought, oh, not an American here talking about this Indian saint, but she turned out to be the most lovely woman. Her name was Kusuma, is Kusuma, because she's still alive, and that means flower. And she gave a beautiful talk about this person called Amma. And Amma means mother. Even though she's a young woman, she's called mother. And because she's spiritually evolved, and we're children, because all of us are children, and she's mother. And um, then, then Kusuma showed us a video of Amma. And, and she explained that Amma gives darshan, which is greeting um, and blessings. And, um, but the way she does it is she hugs you. And I remembered back to Muktananda with his peacock popping. And, um, but Amma actually physically takes you onto her lap like a genuine mother. And she picks you up your face and looks into your face like your mother looks into the baby's face. And um, so we agreed, yes, we would like her to come to Australia. Um, and so that's how it began. But um, also what we learned about Amma was that she literally doesn't sleep and she literally doesn't eat. Um, and she stays up until she's hugged everybody, right down to the last person. Even if there's thousands of people, it doesn't matter how long it takes. Mm. It's like, this is another sort of, this is, this is hard to digest as well. So yeah, when, when um, I heard Amma was actually arrived, she was at a place in uh, Hartwell, which is near Paran, in a hall there. But I realised there were two halls adjacent to each other, a small one and a big one. And the first program was in the small one. It was in the morning, a morning thing. And so I walked in. I was with a friend, sort of a bit of a sort of person who's not really into this sort of thing. And we went along together. And we go in and it's sort of a bit of a start because I was used to Muktananda and the numbers. Here was Amma sitting on an ordinary wooden chair, dressed in a white sari, hair in a bun, and about 15 or 20 people, I've recognised most of them from City Yoga, and silence. And Amma was hugging people, taking a while, a long time with each one, and sniffs and crying, little bits of crying, no boo-hoo, but little sort of sniffs. That's all the only sound in the room. And... Amma would look at me, I, my friend pushed me onto, there was a little row of chairs at the back, she made us sit on the chairs, which felt awful. I wanted to sit down, but this friend of mine had a strong, you know, she should push me around a bit, and I allowed that to happen, because it was a good friendship. But, so we sat on the chairs, the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Amma would look at us and give us the most radiant smile you've ever seen in your life. And I began to feel scared that if I wouldn't have the guts to get down there and be greeted by her because she would know all about me and I didn't want to be exposed. So my friends nudged me and said, come on, let's go. So we sort of got up and sort of sidled out. And as we did, Amma gave us the most beautiful smile and we walked out. And my friend said, oh, well, I'm not going there again. And I said, no. But then I thought to myself, after my yoga class tonight, I'm going to go back. Because I didn't feel I did the right thing. Went back again, but it wasn't in the little hall. It was in the big hall. And there were big glass doors. And I could see Amma and her swamis. And there's, all, there's about half a dozen of them sitting up there in orange. And the hall's full. And there's all these shoes out here in the passageway. So I got such a shock. It's so different. Here's the morning session with a handful of people. Here's the night session. It's like massive. I opened the doors and the blast of sound that came from the chanting, it was like, whoa! And um, I sort of, I better sit down here at the back. It's a, it's a tirade of sound, beautiful sound. And Amma would sometimes call out to Krishna and, or laugh. She'd laugh over the top of the singing. So, ah, ha, 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 You'd have this sort of extraordinary, sort of piercing, frightening, wild <laughs> sound. And, um, and then... And then anyway, gradually the lights came down and they did the arati, which is the waving of the flame around the deity, which was Amma. And then she got down off the, table, off the stage, gets down onto a little chair at the front there, and people start to go up. So that's how I met Amma. And um, I became one of her directors, um, ran the, her satsangs in my studio, for many, many years. So every Sunday there would be a chanting night 
and a meditation and Inama's name. And Inama was on the wall, and she still is. Mm-hmm. And um, I was a director of Inama's for 20 years. And um, that meant that, you know, I was very deeply involved. Inama asked me to find the ashram in Karim Downs. It wasn't in Karim Downs then, but I found it, and it's in Karim Downs. I lived there as a caretaker for six months until it got generating, you know. So I've been deeply involved. But the yoga fest was the question. Well, watching Amma, her whole philosophy, her teaching is service and love. That's it. Service, and that is to all peoples, and love. And so when we got the ashram, she said an ashram has to run on love and service. And this is her demonstration. She doesn't teach like getting up there and teaching. She teaches by example this incredible capacity that she's got to love all. doesn't matter who it is and how terrible they are, how wonderful they are, how rich they are, how poor they are. In fact, there's some footage of Amma with a leper in India a long time ago. This is in the early days of Amma's, Amma's um, process, I suppose you can call it. He's a leper. They stink. The, the, the subjurating pores stink and they're terribly contagious. Amma, in dressed as Krishna, because she be, she would manifest as Krishna twice a week and call it Krishna Bhava, which is in the mood of Krishna, and she would become Krishna. And so you, there's this image, there's this footage of Amma actually licking this leper's sores, and she cured him. I, I saw him a number of years later. You pop marks all over his body, but he's alive and well and um, so Amma was impressive to me I'd never seen anybody ever serve in the way that Amma does and what she's created from her charitable works is extraordinary apart from the fact that she will be hugging somebody right now somewhere in the world mm-hmm. she's hugged more than 24 million people um, she will be doing that right through to the end of her life. And you ask yourself, well, how and why does she bother? How could she be bothered? Like, how many people could I hug? And why do people flock to me? Why don't they flock to me or to you? Why don't they flock like that? What is it that she's got? Wherever she goes, there's a flock, massive flock. And she said many years ago, one day you will not be able to get anywhere near Amma. She always speaks in the third person because she doesn't want to use the word me or I or, you know, you know, you because there'll be too many people. Sure enough, Amma now is that big on the stage, tiny, an inch high, because that's how far away you can get. But she will still hug you. Just will keep hugging till she's yeah, got to the end yeah, of the line. Yeah, mm-hmm. I have seen Amma hug 50,000 people. And they've stood there, those people have stood there. And they've got their babies, their children. This is in India, of course. Unbelievable devotion. Mm. Amma could never let those people down. <laughs> so anyway, this brings me to what I decided to do. When there was a tsunami, was it 2002, I think, when in... It, it, it ricocheted around the Indian coast. And um, anyway, I thought, uh, we should, we should, we, we as a group should do something to donate. Why can't we donate? Look at us. We're wealthy. We've got everything. We've got roofs. We've got floors. We've got walls. We've got stoves, food, kitchens. We've got money. We've got friends, family. We have cars we've got shops we've got everything and yet we think we've got virtually nothing we think we're you know we're we're riddled with too much and so i just decided raise funds now up until then i had a house in summers it's all to do with Amma. she got us to summers how did she get us to summers well when she started coming to australia one year she said i'd like to hold a retreat in Melbourne, we didn't know how many people we could get, so someone said, "Oh, there's a couple of 
camps down in Summers. We could go down there and have a look. There's two adjacent to each other. Maybe we could get them, you know, get them. And maybe, we don't know, we've got to have 500 or 10,000. We've got no idea, but Amma's new here. So we went down and we found the, found the halls and this, the camps, yeah. And amazingly enough, well, not amazingly enough, because Amma wanted them. Both of them were free at the same time. Which is, you know, things just work out that way. Yeah. <laughs> so we booked them, and through Amma, we now run this the camp, the the Lord Summers camp, which is where Amma was. You see, Amma has what she calls, she makes a sankalpa, which is a resolve. So any thought she'll have will manifest. So obviously, she wanted that to happen. And but it was a long time in coming, of course, because seeds don't happen straight off. And so I had this house. I found the house because of Amma. I looked around Summers. I found a house. I found a place for my daughters. Both my daughters have got houses there. I live just close by. And, you know, it's a heaven. It's a heaven on earth, really. And, but because of the tsunami, well, I was running, I was running in my house uh, retreats quite frequently. And I had Vishal helping me. And one day I said to him, hey, Vishal, why don't we hire Lord Summer's camp because I'm getting about 20 people coming to my house for these retreats and they happen, they're great and I donate that money also he said oh we'll never get the people because you've got to have a minimum of 90 people and I said well I, maybe not but shall we give it a go so <laughs> away I went I booked it got the 90 people and that was back in 2005 and we're just about on the brink of doing our 20th one in this cup weekend, November. Oh, wow. We started off with one a year until 2010, and then we did two a year from there on in. I think that's how it worked. So this is number 20. That's exciting. And mm. the money we raise, we donate it entirely to Amma. And in the days gone by, we would send it to India, but she said, I don't need the money in India. I want the money to stay here in Australia. And so that the money we raise, we've donated to the ashram because they are going to build a big kitchen so that it can feed thousands of people. Mm -hmm. That are going to, Amma says thousands will come. So they need to feed them because Amma knows that food is the way to go. <laughs> You've got to have food. Absolutely. Yeah. Food first. Body. Mm -hmm. yeah, body before spirit, really. <laughs> and so that's how it's happened. And never looked back and never regretted it. It's wonderful. It is getting increasingly difficult because as the wonderful young yogis were unattached, didn't have kids, didn't really have jobs, are all now sort of proficient in their own lives. It's 20 years, you know. Mm. Well, I don't know how many years. It's a lot of years anyway. And so it's harder to get them to be able to commit. And so there's less and less help with the organisational side of it, which lands on my shoulders. And I'm getting older and I'm finding that is becoming difficult. I love the teaching. Just if I could walk in and teach a class, bliss. But it's this pre-stuff that's getting me down. But I just have to keep remembering Amma and thinking, how can she keep on going with that, you know, with those hugs? And funnily enough, today is her, not really her birthday, but it's the date her birthday's been um, celebrated globally. Oh, it's Amma Day. Yeah. How auspicious. Yes, yes. Because her birthday is on the 27th of September, but it's being held today. Yep. So there you go. Excellent. <laughs> so if people haven't been to a yoga fest before, do you mm. want to give us a little rundown about how oh, it all sure. unfolds and oh, yeah, what to yeah. expect? Oh, yeah. Well, the two have a difference. Like the, the middle of the year is June, that's the Queen's birthday, we run one yoga fest, and we call that the winter one. So the winter one has, is supposed to, supposed to have a more of an internalizing kind of aspect to it. And the, after the Cup Weekend, which is uh, Melbourne Cup Weekend, is more of a celebratory kind of time. The weather changes, hopefully, and you know, we're right at the sea too. You know, the Lord Summer's camp is sitting on the edge of the ocean. Mm -hmm. The beach, not the ocean. It's the port, uh, Western Port Bay. Beautiful. And um, so the Cup Weekend has a performance night on the Saturday night where you, Joe, 
came out with your uh-huh. hula hoops yeah. and you did the most marvellous thing. Do you still have your hula hoops? Of course. Yeah. Oh. I'm going to show this year. I haven't choreographed it yet, oh, but great. it's happening. Well, I, that was so splendid. Oh, thank you. Yeah, good. yeah, very yeah. good. And yeah. I always end up as a clown. The last clown I did, I was called a Tipsa, Tipsa me, Tipsa your number. And he was a bit of a sort of a... You know, um, <laughs> one of those shifty swallows. Yeah, he's a yeah. shifty old fellow, he was. I uh, don't know what's going to happen this time, but my daughter Jasmine um, had a performance once with her ferrets. But anyway, so we always perform. That's the Saturday night on the Cup Weekend. And the but performance night is for everyone. Oh, so gotcha. anyone yeah. who wants to come and sing a song. Well, exactly. Like, Ron, you're going to do a show, I hope. Am, am I? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, you'd be surprised at the hidden talents in people. And, you know, it's squashed out of us by the world and by by everything from the childhood, from babyhood. You know, you can't sing or you can't paint or you can't do this, you can't do that. So we try and encourage the creativity. Come on out, be yourself, you know, be be the star you really know you are. <laughs> And it doesn't matter if it falls flat in its face, nobody cares. But it's usually quite a good calibre, isn't it? And it's also, it's such a warm, supportive audience. People really blossom. It's like a really nice energy. Like all the meals are eaten together. And you can just go and put your plate of food down next to anyone and start a conversation. Absolutely. It's a very, very loving atmosphere. It really is. And um, comprehensive. And I put that down to Amma's energy because... The very first thing that happens, there's an altar set up there with Amma smiling from the altar down on all the people. And all the cooks are from Amma's ashram and they're Indian and they make the most marvellous, beautiful food, vegan, vegetarian food. And they come out smiling with that three times a day. Mm. And, you know, they they cook it with love and everyone feels it and knows it. And um, so the meals are very important. The um, accommodation is is simple, very clean, ashramic style, really, um, but very nice. Heating, all the rooms are heated. You know, there's plenty of toilets and bathrooms and so on. Everything's really updated. Yeah, really comfortable. <laughs> but it's a dinky place because it used to be a um, place for uh, people, refugees, to stay in early days. Right. And um, that whole piece of land was donated Um to Lord Summers and Lady Summers, they were sent over by the King from England to um, bring the wealthy and the poor together, youth, from the city and have a camp where they work together. Where boundaries are kind of broken down. That's right. And so this is how it was built. And it was all donated from the camp next door, which is the, the education camp. And so, oh no, sorry, got it wrong. It was, there's a place called Coolart just up the road and they donated donated the land to Lord Summers and so it'll never be built on and it's right there on the water and it's got this bushland and you've got the koalas and you've got the dolphins out there in the water you know people swim with the dolphins so the yoga what happens we've got the Swami here this time one of Amas what well, is a brahmachari really which is the step below becoming a fully fledged bird (laughs) he's a he is a swami without being called a swami and uh, his name is shradam rita chaitanya and we call him shradaji and he's going to be present for the whole of the retreat and give talks meditation uh classes and um be there for people to talk to and relate to and we've got really good senior teachers, many teachers who have been around for a long time who really have the depth of yoga instead of this kind of just <clears throat> top level of mm-hmm. speed and glitter. It's more of... Um, it's the deeper layers. Yeah, so that there's, you know, you know why you're doing the yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not there for other people, you're there for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you could be there, you, you know, you, yeah, you, you get a good quality teaching. And um, so people arrive on the Friday night, they're brought into the whole atmosphere, there's an opening ceremony, gentle one, in the morning up at five, early morning meditation, then you have your chai, then off you go to your class, first yoga class, and there's three levels, this year we're doing 
for uh, introductory people, Vishal's taking that. And that'll be really great for people who want to learn about the body and how to put it into place. Then you've got um, Johannes doing a, a general Hatha yoga session, which will be nice for people who have done a fair bit of yoga. And then we've got Michelle doing stronger type of more experiential yoga. And uh, she's fabulous and dynamic person. So that's the morning sessions. And then we have breakfast, lunch, or whatever you're going to call it. It's a proper meal. And then we go into workshops. And there's all different sorts of you're doing... What's one of your workshops? I'm doing Joe. one which is uh, yoga combined with Pilates stability movements. Uh, another one that me and Rana are kind of presenting together because it's a topic that's really close to both our hearts is yoga for digestive ease, yes. which will be a much more gentle I should come practice. To that. Please come <laughs> to that. I should be honoured. You've got to be careful what we eat, don't we? Oh, no, all sounds, <laughs> expressions of all sorts are welcome in that session. <laughs> And then I'm also doing a yin and myofascial release workshop where we're going to be using some balls and um, kind of just getting to know like the landscapes of our own bodies and kind of uncovering those kind of tight areas that maybe we didn't even know that we had to Mm. be able to kind of work with that and gradually release some of that in the yin postures where we're going to be staying in the poses for minutes at a time and finishing with a meditation at the end of that. Wow, you see, this is, now this is just Joe. <laughs> now there's 10 teachers and they're all as enthusiastic as Joe in their fields, including myself. I'm going to put you behind a blindfold, folks. Oh, wow. So you're going to enjoy that because the minute you get behind a blindfold, you forget where you are, you forget who you are supposed to be, and you find out that you're somebody else entirely inside. And so when you put your arm out, for instance, you don't know how far it's gone, how high it is, how low it is, etc. It's fabulous. Yeah, it sounds great. It is great. <laughs> I guess I'll, be, uh, I'll actually be helping out in the cafe. Which, oh, good. Which I think is a fabulous uh, addition to the... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it seems to be a bit of a, a social uh, oh, yeah. hub. It is one of the lovely things about yoga. Yes. You're saying how it's Amma's energy that sets up the warmth and the welcome, but it's mm. also your energy as well, you Shani. You really well, I set suppose that tone. So, I suppose so. Yep. And yep. even though there are like a lot of the deeper practices in that quiet space of mm. meditation, there mm. is a really fun festival oh, vibe gosh, yes. as well. Like, oh, definitely. It's not it's not sober and somber. No, it's taken away that sort of um, fake, flaky sort of way supposedly to be if you're yogic it's being real you know let's get real people yeah 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 Yeah. open up you know throw open the windows open the doors empty the attic yeah yoga's for everyone yeah absolutely (laughs) you can be old young doesn't matter i think uh one thing about a lot of the teachers that will be there is that they actually are some of the people that you taught oh, all yes. the way back at That's the right. beginning of Dance of Life. And, uh, and one thing I've heard people sort of say is that you've um, sort of a, attracted this community of people around you that are, are sort of a little bit perhaps left of the mainstream. Oh, definitely. They're all old performers. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah. like Take Telford, yep. you know, performer, Vishal performer, myself <laughs> a performer, Joe performer. The other Joe, um, who else is there? Johannes, he wasn't a performer. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, no, they're basically definitely left of centre. Mm-hmm. Oh, you've got to be left of centre, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and there's actually a great quote I, I found in your book, um, which I really resonate with. It says, I've managed my whole life to avoid fitting into the norm of society and have always lived outside of it, doing my own thing in my own way. Mm-hmm. Perhaps you'd like to talk about that just briefly. Well, that's right. And what can you say? I cannot bear to be one of the tribe. Although I must say... You found I, your own tribe. Yeah. <laughs> Made it, well perhaps. said, Joe. But I did feel like one of the tribe this weekend when the Tigers won. My dad's a Tiger supporter as well. Well, I haven't been, but couldn't help but get involved with the energy. Mm. And it felt great to be one of the mess. Mm. But you see, I'd like to just wind back to when I was three or four and the sheep came past the gate and I was swinging on the little blue gate and looking out 
into the street and I saw these bar lambs coming along in mass, on mass, and I ran out with them because I loved them. And I got caught up in the middle of them. I'm one of the, I'm one of the herd, you know, <laughs> and I'm getting crushed. I could be crushed to death here, but I'm, my head was just high as a couple <laughs> of lambs. And they're bobbing backs and I'm here walking, running along, being running and the little clip top, clip top of their feet. And, and parents are looking, people are looking. They heard the, the cow, the sheep herd's worried. He's got his hook. Anyway, they get me out. I didn't think it was scary. And I loved it, and I was one of the herd, one of the one of the mob. <laughs> That's funny, isn't it? <laughs> so yeah, I've become one of the yoga mob. This is weird. Um, mm, what do I think about that now? Um, look, I've never really worked for other people. Mm-hmm. I've been self-employed. Mm-hmm. I've done my own thing. I've been lucky to find houses that suit me at extraordinary. Look, an example is I found this beautiful house at the Collingwood Children's Farm before it was a farm when it was owned, that whole complex, you know, the children's farm and the nunnery and everything was still a nunnery, but they were just selling it and it had just actually been sold and so that house just became vacant and the nuns were just leaving and there were auctions selling off everything from there and I happened to get that place. Now how that happened, the ego miracle times. I had a donkey, I had two young teenage daughters, dogs and cats, needed a place, didn't have anywhere to go, coming from where I was, had to leave there, house being sold. And so how, asked the gods, and the man, the lovely man, said to me, how about $15? And I knew the people that had lived there before had paid 30 for many years. And I said, 30 and 15, that makes 40. I said, that's I could pay 60. He said, no, no, 15. So he charged me $15 for that place. Wow. (laughs) And he said, just fix it up in your own time. Um, And, you know, when you think you're ready, you can pay more. And it was $15 for a number of years, and it went into the hands of the um, the, the, uh, Peter Smythe, the... um, you know, the agent, and it went up. Eventually, after 17 years on a week-to-week basis, because he said, of course, it will be a week-to-week basis, you realise that. I said, it's okay, because a voice said to me, you'll have this house as long as you need it. And so it was 17 years. Wow. By the time my two daughters had gone through their first relationships, I'd been able to go and start the studio in Smith Street. Animals had lived and died, you know, the farm had begun, you know, uh, it ended up $90 a week after all those years. And when we emptied that house, it was on the same day that my mother was killed. Oh, wow. So it was the ending. You know, I'm really into dates. Like I've noticed dates. Have you? No, I'm really bad at keeping track of dates. <laughs> oh, wow. We regularly forget our wedding anniversary. My oh, parents no, I don't mean, I don't mean, oh, I like that, yeah. <laughs> uh, another extraordinary date. My father said to me when I married James Wigley, the painter, he took me aside because it was just in the registry office. It was very, you know, um, he said, you know, this is the day your mother and I were married. Now, that's unusual. Mm. And my mother dying and the house having to be left, but also my daughter left to go to live in New York on that date as well. So I couldn't help but Mm. notice this twangling of dates. Mm. And the 1st of November is a very important date. I got the Dance of Life studio in Smith Street on the 1st of the 11th. I opened it on that day. And then when we had to shift after um, however many years it was, 86 to 99, 13 years, we opened up at the church where we are now up there on the same date the first of the 11th wow the the yoga fests are always around that date first of the 11th or close to it it's mm-hmm. those dates yeah, yeah, you can't yeah. argue with them no yeah, yeah. i can't <laughs> <laughs> i won't well you I could won't. but there wouldn't be any point <laughs> <laughs> yes so you've written three memoirs about your amazing and fascinating life and also illustrated them. Yeah. Would you like to tell us a little bit about how this? that happened? Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I got a computer. When I was about 15, it was obvious I was a useless student at school because I used to wag it and go and watch films instead, like uh, Audrey Hepburn in War and Peace because she looked like my mum. And um, so what did I do? I was eventually, my father thought, sensibly send me off to learn typing in shorthand. So off I went to the Stops Business College and I learned to type. Thank God I learned to type because I have used it. I can type. So when I, I computer started to happen, I got one. I bought one off the television because they were advertising you can buy them. So it eventually turned up and I started typing. And it was so easy. I could type and I decided, oh, I'll just write down some of the things. So I started writing the memories. And I didn't write it as a book. I wrote it because it was wonderful to write it. And I just kept going and I'd, every time I wrote one of the chapters, I'd do a drawing. And I just did it for myself. Like I've always just done things. I've never planned things ever. And um, except of course the yoga fest, you have to have a certain plan, don't mm. you? But um, so that book was one. And it ended at a certain point in 2002 or something like that. And now it's, 2017 so uh, there's more story but <laughs> the yes. stories just keep happening yeah. <laughs> but I don't know if I'll bother but I just <laughs> wrote it because I loved it and um, then when I heard about self-publishing um, this was 10 years after I finished that book it sat doing nothing 10 years later I thought maybe I could self-publish so I did I paid for it, a couple of thousand, to have it done. But they said, oh, we can't do it as one volume, it's too big. So can you do something about that? So they, we ended up cutting it into three, just slicing it into three, mm -hmm. sort of three compartments, really, 20, 20, and 22 years. And it worked out very well that way. I didn't like the idea initially. I thought, no, that's ruining it. But I actually think it's good. They thought it was a good idea, and I think they were right. And having read them, they're fascinating yeah. reads. Yeah. And it does seem very naturally like three different yeah, chapters. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, I suppose, you know, childhood and sort of, you know, teenage, sort of up to your 20s is really one one era. Then you go into your sort of householder thing, don't you, for, say, 20 years? Mm. That's when you sort of get into relationships, homes, houses, families, and work. And then you've got the next, and you know, in India, they have that. They have, they, I think they have, is it four or three? There's the childhood, that's one. The student, that's two. Three is the householder and four is the forest dweller. So that's basically where I am. So who knows whether I'm going to walk off the edge into a sort of another dimension because I'll be 76 in January. I've got to ask myself this. Do I want to keep going? as I have done, mm -hmm. because I'm a driven person. Like, if I have a jigsaw puzzle, I'm going, I have to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if there's something to be done, if that wall needs painted, it has to be done. I can't bear unfinished business. And I want to be ready, too, you know, when the time comes for me to, to leap off the edge, to be ready. I don't want any unfinished business. Mm. I like to be on time if I make an appointment with somebody. I can't bear to be... I like to finish my classes on time, mm -hmm. you know, and start them on time. I like time mm. because it's a, you have to respect it. Mm -hmm. You know, we all have to live by it. So might as well ex respect it and use it because it's actually moments, isn't it? Time mm -hmm. is moments. It comes back down to now, you know. Now is the only real time and the rest of it where you have to bow to it. And so, um, what was the question? <laughs> Yours was it open in the question? <laughs> but I do have another question oh, good. about your books. Yes. It must be an interesting experience meeting someone for the first time when they already know your life story. Well, I don't know anybody like that. Because all the people that have read my story that I know of know me. Ah, oh, yeah. So you come first and then they read the books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I haven't tried to sell them. You're on Amazon, though, I think. Yeah, I'm on mm. all the... Yeah. You can get my books anywhere. Yeah. You just have to type my name in, you'll get me. But... I never get any uh, royalties. I think I've from I've written a few books, not just those books. Mm -hmm. I've written one on Henry Mars. I've written uh, a couple of other ones that also they I've self published. Don't get any uh, royalties. Maybe fifty bucks total. You know, I don't care. I didn't do it again for money. Not at all. 
I pay to make to produce mm. these books. I buy them and sell them at the price I buy them for. Mm-hmm. But I don't do it anymore. Forget it. People want them, they can go online, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it seems very much about your creative expression. Mm, yes. How does that express itself these days? What is your practice look um, like these days? Uh, well, I was thinking about this because I thought you'd ask me about my own practice. And I thought, well, what's it like? Because I was on my head this morning while I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good place to think. (laughs) You know, get those old rattle bones happening. Um, I was thinking, it's like cheese or wine or fruit. Goes through a process. You know, the fruit begins, well, let's say after the bud sit thing and then the flower, whatever. It becomes a baby fruit. And then it has to... Slowly, slowly become a big fruit, then it's got to become a ripe fruit, and then it has to fall. So it goes through all of those processes. And I'm also going through those processes with my yoga practice. Like I was a new fruit, and Velda's telling me I've got a huge ego, you know, and I'm a, a princess yoga because I can do everything with my body. Then I'm gradually expanding my understanding, the development of Muktananda's influence, the teaching of the meditation, and Amma's example, and what it is, and all of these things are making the fruit riper, so that my practice really is seeing everyone as equal, and that's people in the street. I smile. As Amma says, what does it cost to smile? Mm You know, it's free and it makes a difference. And so I love everybody, really. Mind you, I don't like anybody as well. You know, but on another level, I love them all. You know what I mean? Um, So you see the people in the street, you smile. And you usually find, you don't have to think, am I going to smile? You just smile because they're there. And it's it's absolutely great. And... um, so my practice is I do a little bit of yoga, but not like the gung-ho stuff I used to do. I don't need to. My body can do it. Mm. I mean, I don't teach what I can't do. If I can't do a headstand, for instance, I'm not going to teach it. If I can't do a backbend, I'm not going to teach it. If I can't do full arm balance or, a, or an elbow, you know, if I can't do Paschimottanasana forward bend, then I can't teach it. So I have to keep myself up to speed so I can do it as best or better than anyone else in the room. So on my own, I'll do a head, a shoulder, and a forward bend. That's pretty well it. I'm pretty happy with that. That's your practice? Pretty well. And I'm trying to understand life and and the pain and horror and the terror. And all those things that are going on there and knowing that we're affected while those people are suffering there on another part of the planet, we are also responsible. And so somehow, well, you know, don't eat meat, for instance. That's a big one for me. I can't, but I won't try and stop other people because you can't. I can only not do it myself. I want my conscience to be clear. And um, I don't care about other people. I just don't know how they can do it. But, you know, that's their business. My business is not to do it. And that's the same with everything. So try and keep my plate clean. And I don't mean my plate in front of me. I mean my, my path. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Um, I remember, I think it was last uh, Yoga Fest, you said something along the lines to me that you're not so interested in travelling to exotic locations. Oh, I'm never going again. No. It's over. And that, and that you just prefer to just drop in... Um, Dropping to your own space. Ah. Um, perhaps you'd like to talk about that. Yeah, I'd like to because I'm really absolutely sh- shocked at the people travelling around the world, footless and fancy free, without any understanding of who they are mm. and why they're going. People like if you win money, where what are you going to do with the money you win? I think I'll go on a holiday. From what, to begin with, and to where? 
you know, what about internally? Why not find out something about ourselves? Mm -hmm. Find that inner peace within, which is there for the taking and it's free. Mm. And it's easy to get to. You just have to stop. And people can't stop. They're moving, moving, moving. Like I went to Vienna, no, Venice, sorry, Venice, back in 79, was it? Yeah. And the amount of tourism there was terrifying. And that was then. And now it's probably tripled, doubled, quadrupled. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere. People are travelling the world Mm -hmm. looking at other people. Or old churches. Why? This is it's a disease. It's a disease. And the f- flights, they're coming and they're going. And they're coming. They're landing every five seconds. They're landing. They're landing on every every airport you like. And they're going and they're coming. And they're, it's costing money. The money that it takes to fly somewhere could feed a community for months. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the... the the, what it's doing to the environment, the amount of pollution that's coming out of those planes, killing the earth here. It's just, it's crazy. It's mm-hmm. crazy. And I feel really, as you can tell, very mm-hmm. passionate about this. And But I do understand that travel's been a good thing for me. I'm glad I've done it. Mm-hmm. But I'm never, ever entering an airport again and certainly never getting on a plane again. No, that's it. It's over. Do you think sometimes people need to look beyond their little bubble and outside of themselves to have that perspective? But to do look they see outside the bubble? Well, that's the question. Do they, they just take their the bubble with way. them when they go overseas? That's right. The bubble goes. If they could pick, pick the bubble and actually absorb the community, well, that's another thing. But can they? And there's so many now. There's so many people. Now, take Venice. I've heard recently that there's no Venetians living in Venice they can't afford it. All those, probably, but all the shops are now tourist shops run by people who are not Venetians. Right. See what I mean? And that's not just there. That's one pinpoint. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a crazy thing. Well, it's a globalisation. I suppose it's a beginning of a t- transition to something. And I suppose it's that's what's happening. Maybe when you blow out so far, there's only one way to go, and that's back in. But... How much damage do we do on the way? Mm-hmm. And there's so little education. Nobody really understands anything. And, you know, you go through the school process and the university process. So what? What have you learned about real things? About how to breathe? How to eat? How to think? All of these things matter. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it's not happening. <laughs> so I guess that leads to another question. So people who, like especially yoga teachers, who have a taste that there is something beyond that kind of first layer of knowledge, mm-hmm. how do you go deeper? Like, have you got any advice for new teachers who want to continue that journey and not just take a package trip to India or, mm. you know, like... That's a very hard question to answer, isn't it? Mm. Um, I have no idea, really. Um, all I can say is it's experience, isn't it? Being open to experiences. I just think just just to grow yourself. We have to keep being who we are and keep on exploring because there's so much. There's been so much. There's so much beautiful. Like the yoga is Indian. It, it comes from India. Its root, it is the tree of life, is that root, and it's in India. Mm-hmm. And the branches are so magnificent, and they have so much knowledge. Um, and if you can it, get in somehow into the um, connection with that and, and try and develop that... Uh, hmm. Look, I, really, it's a hard question because... I'm not there anymore. I'm not a young teacher. Uh, I don't know. I know there's a lot of young teachers out there. There's a, yeah, there's hundreds and hundreds of them. And they go through the learning. They, they, they're taught how to take things from the Bhagavad Gita to read to their classes, you know, the truth of Arjuna and Krishna. But does that mean anything? Do they know Krishna actually was a real human being? You know, there's this sort of stuff. 
and then who's Kali and what is Kali and what does Kali represent? And, you know, all of those depths. But does a new teacher have to know that? Mm. I don't really know whether they have to know all that. I'm just grateful I have. Mm. <laughs> you know? Um, and I guess it's not like you can know everything. <laughs> like, you know, it's a lifetime <laughs> a practice and right. learning. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's some marvellous teachers out there. But, like, you know, take um, Yogananda, beautiful Yogananda, who came to the West in the... Uh, when was it, the 1920s, I think. He was the first yogi to come. And um, he, he was in America and he spoke about the truth. He had standing ovations from these brains, the people who were in that audience. They were the, 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 the elite, really, of intelligentsia in all departments. And they just stood and, you know, stood for him. And here he is, hair hanging down to his shoulders, wearing a robe, simple beautiful truthful just like that humble mm. on top big humble and this the other thing about the yogis they're humble a real yogi is humble i've always noticed this with amma and her yogi her yoga her her swamis they're humble it's quite shocking how humble they are and it's not fake it's genuine and um it's quite interesting the way they are, and um, particularly Amma, of course. So I can't really sort of add to that with the young yoga people, the young teachers. Um, yeah. I think so, that was a great answer, though. Was it? Mm. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Humility. Yeah. We always finish our yoga classes with the prayer for mantra for peace. Shall I do that? Beautiful. Will you do it with me? Sure. It means may all beings everywhere be peaceful and happy. And it's an ancient Sanskrit prayer. And we chant this at our, at our classes, at the end of the class. And we always bring the hands into prayer position. And we feel and think that thought. And Amma says that a prayer isn't a weak thing at all. Because the power of thought is more powerful than anything really. So let's feel this prayer as we chant it. Om Loka Samasta Sukhino Bhavantu Loka Samasta Sukhino Bhavantu Loka Samasta Sukhino Bhavantu Om Shanti 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 Om Sri Guru Bhyo Namaha Hari Alright, so now it's time for our picks of the week and mine is the book Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha by Daniel Ingram and that is a really good sort of, I wouldn't say introduction because it gets pretty deep but it's about insight meditation and there's a lot of techniques in there and levels of concentration that are well beyond me but it is a really interesting um i guess insight on on what might be uh down the line for people really wanting to dig into their meditation practice and he also has a few sort of contentious things to say about um buddhism so it makes for a a great read so how about you joe well my pick of the week is in those random three or two hour blocks of time that i often have in my day between teaching yoga classes I've started going to the art gallery and it's a very uplifting way to spend my afternoon all weather you can just drop your heavy bag of sound system and yoga props off at the cloakroom and that's fine there um, I've went to the Hokusai exhibition just recently and that was amazing and there's just something about looking at beautiful art that puts me in a great state of mind for my afternoons teaching it's nice to just absorb when the rest of your day is giving out and it's a much more fulfilling and productive thing to do for my state of mind than to sit in a cafe and look at my phone for three hours so that's my pick of the week art gallery visits 
And mine, I suppose, is um, a book on Isadora Duncan, the great pioneer of creative, expressive dance. She has a book um, called My Life, and it's unedited. It's as she wrote it, and it's really great. She was such a freedom fighter, had a tragic life in many ways, uh, but the writing is, it takes you there. It's the early 19, well, it's probably 1920, and uh, where she stripped off the barrage of toe shoes and tutus and flowed. She was all about flow, and her whole methodology is the wave. The wave in all life, you know, everything is a wave. So that's my pick of the book, of the week. The book is Adora. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Eugenie as much as we enjoyed having it. If you're in the Melbourne region or even further beyond, you should definitely check out Yoga Fest. It will be a great weekend. I'll leave a link in the show notes. As always, if you've got any questions or suggestions, feel free to reach out to us at podcast.flowartist.com or email us at podcast.flowartist.com. You can reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter. If you did enjoy this podcast and you'd like to hear more, please consider leaving us a review or rating on iTunes to help us get the word out. The theme song in this podcast is Baby Robots by Ghost Soul and is used with permission. Check out his music from ghostsoul.bandcamp.com. Thanks again. Big, big love. <laughs>